Though the language echoes from its era, the words themselves are as timely as ever. So I would invite you to find the prayer for Independence Day from the Presbyterian 1946 Book of Common Worship. It is printed on the bulletin cover. And may we pray it now together with one voice. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable industry, sound learning, and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogancy, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one happy people the multitudes brought hither out of many kindreds and tongues. Endue with the spirit of wisdom those to whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government, that there may be justice and peace at home, and that through obedience to thy law we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In the time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness, and in the day of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail. Amen. Friends, our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark, beginning at the 21st verse of the fifth chapter. Let us hear God's word. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, for a reason too convoluted to explain now, I found myself talking to someone about the health care system in Zanesville, Ohio, where I grew up just a few days ago. And memories flooded back. We had two hospitals, a Catholic called Good Samaritan and a non-Catholic Protestant other hospital called Bethesda. Nuns founded Good Samaritan, Presbyterians founded Bethesda. But by the time we moved there, those distinctions had largely, though not entirely, faded away. My dad visited church members in both hospitals. Now, some 20 years ago, I learned, the hospitals merged, as they're doing all across the country, even in our region, for all the reasons we know so well. Two hospitals merged into one. So you need a new name. The new name, Genesis Hospital. And I thought to myself, if you're going to name a hospital after a book of the Bible, Genesis is probably better than Exodus, and it's probably better than Lamentations, right? (laughs) So as a kid, I remember my dad leaving the house or coming home after a hospital visit. And it was not until years later that I thought much about what he did. Our kids now have had the same experience seeing me head to or come back home from Strong or RGH or just for a brief moment Genesee Hospital, you remember that, or Park Ridge Hospital which became Unity Hospital which is now RGH Unity and likely will become something else as things evolve. Here at Third Church we learn that someone is in the hospital or that they have a surgery planned. And sometimes we're encouraged not to visit. It's too much bother we hear. Or I won't be in all that long. And my standard practice is to ignore that request. It's never a bother for us to come visit somebody in the hospital. And any hospital stay matters, brief or long. And in general, people are glad to see us when we show up. 
I used to ask people if they wanted a prayer, seeking to be sensitive. Now almost always I just pray, even briefly, and despite any initial reluctance or hesitance, people are grateful that I did. I'm sure you get that. In my dad's last year at the church in Zanesville, he presided at some 50 funerals or memorial services. They were mostly funerals then, with a casket present, 50 of them. That means that many of the people he visited at Bethesda and Good Samaritan died soon or soon thereafter. And of course, the same happens now and here. Some 20 or 25 memorial services at Third Church annually, one just a day or so ago. And yet, and this is the gospel. We continue to show up. We continue to show up, not just the ministers, but our board of deacons, our fabulous board of deacons, and all of you, all of us, we continue to show up, to visit, to hold a hand, to commiserate about hospital food, to watch TV at the bedside, to pray. We show up, not to engineer a result, a healing, but for deeper reasons than that. Because yes, we know that some people will heal and recover. Many visits these days are for hip and knee replacements, what I call a 21st century tune-up to get people back on track, or other kinds of procedures that can fix things that can be fixed. But there are other realities, cancer, dementia, heart disease, the natural journey of aging, for which we know death is the destination. And yet we continue to show up. The point is not praying an eloquent prayer or a fervent prayer in order to effectuate a miraculous healing, to have the surgery go better than otherwise it might have, to make the chemo work just this one time, to hope that the surgeon has a particularly good day. We know that's not how it works. Chemo works and it doesn't. Hearts mend and they fail. Bodies heal and they don't. We know that, yet we continue to show up. A synagogue leader showed up. His name was Jairus. His daughter was sick, sick to the point of death. And he sought Jesus out, a desperate, loving father, searching for healing. Just come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus agreed. That's worth noting. And the crowd followed. But as we just heard, before Jesus got to the girl, something else happened along the way. A woman, 
who had been suffering from menstrual hemorrhaging for 12 years, experiencing not only physical pain, but we presume social and religious hardship, who had endured much under many physicians, who had spent every dime she had, who sought healing but experienced none, somehow heard about Jesus. And like Jairus, she was desperate, though she had no standing to speak to Jesus, let alone invite him to heal her. So in that anonymous crowd, she reached out and touched Jesus' clothing, and she was healed. She stopped bleeding. And somehow, Jesus knew. He sensed an exchange of power. He looked around and inquired, and the woman confessed. And rather than retribution, what she and we might expect, he told her that her faith had made her well. He even called her daughter. Meanwhile, Jairus hears a report that his daughter has died. And Jesus corrects their perception of the situation. Do not fear, only believe. Believe like the woman who had been healed has believed. And then there's all sorts of description in Mark's gospel. The bottom line is that even though the crowds laughed at him, Jesus took the daughter by the hand and told her to get up, and she did. And then two things, amazement and secrecy. We do so many things with these stories of Jesus and healing. Many of the things are wrong. Wrong not in the sense of misplaced faith, of course, not wrong because we know people, in fact, We've been people desperate for healing, as desperate as a concerned father and a bleeding woman. Not wrong even because we've sought Jesus out. We don't know the true nature of their afflictions, and I don't want ever, ever to discount unexplained and unexpected, miraculous even, healing. But we know different and better and deeper than that. Chemo works and it doesn't. Hearts mend and they fail. Bodies heal and they don't. Bleeding stops and it doesn't. Daughters live. Daughters. Daughters live and they die. So what are we to make of all this? Well, like many things, we leave it to mystery and interpretation, this story. Yet here are some possibilities. It is about determination. A father's, a woman's. Of the woman, Mark Davis writes, she is as defined by her determination as she is by her suffering. After all that she suffered and did, she grabbed his garment. So it's about determination. And it's about presence. Jesus showed up. We show up. 
Brian Volk writes, the encounter is far more important than the cure. Hear that, the encounter is far more important than the cure. Or perhaps it's better to say that the cure is the outward sign of an inward transformation. So it's about determination and it's about presence and it is about touch. The woman touched Jesus. Jesus touched the little girl. Both were taboo in Jewish law. Touching a woman who was menstruating, touching a dead body. Yet not only did Jesus defy convention, he did so at the most elemental level. And we know that as well, sharing an embrace, touching a hand as it reaches out to us. Alice McKenzie writes, though we are not called to go around curing people's symptoms and raising them from physical death, we are called to seek Jesus' touch. And Rick Morley writes, until we are either touched by Jesus or reach out and touch Jesus ourselves, then and only then are we delivered from death and given the sacred gift of life. Frederick Buechner writes eloquently about this passage. The question is, what kind of story is it? If the little girl had actually died the way the people who were there in the house believed she had, then it is the story of a miracle as dazzling as the raising of Lazarus and bears witness to the power Jesus had over even the last and darkest power of all. If she was only sleeping, as Jesus said, in a coma or whatever he may have meant, then it is a story about a healing about the power of Jesus' touch to make the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. Either way, Buechner writes, it is a story about a miracle, but about a miracle that doesn't end with an exclamation point the way you would expect, but with a question mark or at most with a little row of dots that means unresolved, to be continued, to figure out somehow for ourselves. Who can say for sure, Buechner concludes, exactly what it is that Jesus did in the house where Jairus lived or how far down into the darkness he had to reach to do it? But in a way, who cares any more than her mother and father can have cared? They had their child back. She was alive again. She was well again. That was all that mattered. And then Buechner writes this. Who knows what kind of story Mark is telling here. But the enormously moving part of it is, I think, the part where Jesus takes the little girl's hand and says, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And suddenly we ourselves are the little girl. It is that life-giving power that is at the heart of this shadowy story and that I believe is at the heart of all our stories. The power of new life, new hope, new being, that whether we know it or not, it keeps us coming in search of it. It is the power to get up even when getting up isn't all that easy for us anymore. And to keep getting up and going on and on toward whatever it is, whoever he is, 
that all our lives long reaches out to take us by the hand. So, we continue to show up with determination, with hope, seeking his presence somehow. We show up believing in something deeper than magic, hoping for a cure, but trusting in something more powerful, more powerful than death itself. Whatever healing looks like, whatever healing is, it is this, reflected in risk and hope and defying convention in trust in touch. It is this, that community surrounds us, that we are called and empowered to be that community, that Jesus welcomes us, that Jesus knows our name, that Jesus reaches out. That's the miracle. Amen.